Amen. We cry out that dry bones come alive. Amen. Our, our culture, our society so desperately needs the new life that Jesus Christ can bring. And we want to talk about that today. Are you glad to be here in the house of the Lord? This is a good crowd this morning. Thank you so much. I want to pray when you leave here today, you will say it was good, good to be in the house of the Lord today. And so go ahead and get your device out and get the worship event going. It's in the lower right corner. Hit event. All the scriptures and all the slides are there. And, of course, get out the Word of God, your hard printed copy, if you'd like to use it that way. And today we're in our third and final week of Rethinking Church for today. Rethinking Church for today. And week number one, we talked about how God hit the reset button okay, in our lives. And, boy, did he ever do exactly that. And week number two, we talked about how he realigned. It was a encouraging scripture, an encouraging scripture about God's got a bigger plan for us. And today, we're going to talk about restart, restarting a church. And I'm going to tell you right now, a better word and a, a, a good synonym for that is the word revival. The word revival. Um, I, I checked to make sure because I knew it was there. I've watched this thing more than you have. And that video where it says in there, could the coronavirus or could coronavirus ignite revival? Could coronavirus ignite revival? And, and I think the better question would be, how can it not? How can it not? I don't know how God intended the coronavirus to impact the lost world. I do believe I know why or how he expects and wanted, desired the coronavirus to impact the church. And that is a reawakening and a revival of the church today. Would you say amen to that? See, see, the greater tragedy, the greater tragedy for the church, for the church of the coronavirus will not be just going through the coronavirus. The greatest tragedy will be missing whatever God wanted to show us. That would be the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy through all of this is for us not to learn what God wanted to teach us through the coronavirus. God does not waste suffering, and God does not waste time. So you can make sure that as we have gone through this and continue to go through this, that God has a plan that he is working through, and I think it deeply, deeply um, involves the church. So could the coronavirus ignite revival in, in our churches, and I say yes, amen, and I pray that it would. You might say, well, what is revival? Because it's, it's one of those terms that you don't hear enough of anymore. So, so what is a good definition for revival? Well, Charles Finney, and he was an old-time evangelist, long gone dead, um, but he, boy, he, he nailed it, and he's one of our great evangelist preachers, by the way. It says revival, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance. Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance. Do you think the church could use that? Come on, come on, come on. Amen? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a renewed conviction of sin and repentance followed by, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. Get that. Intense desire to live in obedience to God. Now I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I sense in my spirit, I sense in my heart, this is what God had in mind when he allowed the coronavirus to come into our lives as the people of God. It's given up one's will to God in deep humility. And again, yes, 
I think it's exactly what he did. I think he realigned us. He helped us refocus on what God wants to do um, in this world today. So here's what we're going to do. And I think, and by the way, I think this whole book, Haggai, has been a great study for me. I pray it has been for you also as we've looked at this. Um, but, you know, first thing we want to talk about this morning is what's in a name. What's in a name. And then we're going to take a look at holiness and defilement, okay? And lastly, we're going to look at a promise. And all this is in Haggai um, chapter 2. So, so let's look and see what's in this name. Uh, we've used it every week over and over again, but I've never taken time, Brent, to explain you know, to you, well, what does that name mean? Because it's kind of an unusual name for God. All right, look in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, verse number 10 and 11a. And then we have the date again on December the 18th. And by the way, in 116 days, 116 days, this whole thing takes place. From, from Haggai 1 to the end of Haggai, 116 days it takes place. So on December the 18th of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. And here's that name. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. It's such an unusual name for God. And yet, for some reason, God chose to use that name in Haggai to describe himself. The definition is really quite simple. It simply means this. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Um, the, the titles like general, commander, come to my mind. And so it's a wonderful name, but it's a name... Now listen, write this down. It's a mighty name of God. There are a lot of names of God. You know, he's the healer, he's redeemer, those softer, and that's in a good way, softer names of God. But then we have this name, uh, Captain, Commander, Lord of Heaven's Armies, and such a strong name. It occurs about 250 times um, in the Old Testament in different variances as it was translated, okay? But what's interesting is the very first time it was used is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 3. Now, what's unusual about that, um, there's a woman named Hannah, and she desperately wanted a child. She desperately wanted a child. That's one of those situations where her husband had another wife, and the other wife was prolific. I mean, she was having babies left and right, and Hannah was barren. And, and the husband, supposedly, if you can do it, it's just weird. You need to read your Bible because it's so weird. Okay? So, so the husband supposedly loved Hannah more than the other wife. Okay? But she was barren. So she goes to the temple, and she begins to beg God for a child. And guess what name she used? The Lord of Heaven's armies. She called upon one of the strongest, one of the most powerful names in the Bible for God himself. Oh, Lord of Heaven's armies, would you please give me a child? And by the way, God did. And she became the mother of the prophet Samuel, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. So it's a very, very strong name. Now, now what I want us to do, it's not really a detour, but I need to take you to the art gallery. I need to take you to the art museum, and I want to paint a picture of what this Lord of Heaven's army means, okay? So, again, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn there. It'll be on the screen. In Psalm 24, of all places, Psalm 24, um, the psalmist gives us an awesome picture of this idea and concept of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Now, we start out a little bit well, kind of like with Christmas, okay? And so you might go, well, where's this going? Well, hang with me. I, I love the movie Hoosers, and, and one of the coaches, you know, was going to do the, something about the picket fence. I don't know if that's a play in basketball or not. But he said, don't get caught watching the paint dry. 
So don't get caught this morning watching the paint dry. Stay with me. It's a beautiful picture. So imagine, if you will, and again, you've got to use your spiritual imagination. Imagine, if you will, it's, um, it's 3 B.C. It's 3 B.C. And in heaven, okay, the Father looks to the Son and says, It's time. It's time. And so imagine Jesus getting up and leaving heaven and going down to earth. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, imagine him getting up when the Father says, it's time. He gets up and goes down to earth, becomes a little baby, and is born of the Virgin Mary. Now imagine, of course, this, we know, actually for the first 30 years, we just don't know a whole lot. We've got a few pictures of when Jesus was circumcised, when he was 12 years old. But the bottom line is from, from the time he was born to 30 years old, we just don't know a whole lot about Jesus. We know he probably worked in his father's carpenter shop, but really don't know a whole lot. But when he was about 30 years old, he went public. He went public. And for three years, and if you remember correctly, I've told you several times, for about 1,095 days, about 1,095 days, he turned the world upside down. That's what David was reading from Colossians. He turned the world upside down. He began this public ministry, a new teaching, miracles, raising people from the dead. Just an incredible ministry for three years. And then when he's 33 years old, and by the way, you know, he left heaven for a purpose, and this was the purpose. This was the purpose. So, so he left heaven, goes down, and then finally he's 30, 33 years old, okay? Then the time has come again. And so they arrest him. All right, and they nail him to a Roman cross somewhat similar to something like this. And he went on that cross for one purpose, and that was to bleed and die for people like you and me. Because see, the Bible says that the payment for sin is death. But then God has the greater idea that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he came and he died on a Roman cross without shedding the blood. There can be no remission of sins, the Bible says. So he shed his blood for our sin. For our sin. Okay? Then he was buried. Now, if you remember back, a while back, the importance of his burial was to prove that he was dead. This was not a time for a swooning Savior. It's not for a time for a comatose Savior. In order for Jesus Christ to resurrect, he had to be really good and dead. And he was. Amen? He was. So, so they buried him to prove he was dead. And then on the third day, somebody say third day. Uh, on the third day, he resurrected to prove he was the Son of God. See, he was buried to prove he was dead. And he resurrected on the third day to prove that he was the Son of God. All right, so he walks around showing himself for 40 days, and finally he ascends back to the Father. Okay, he ascends back to heaven. And this is where I want you to strap on your spiritual imaginations, okay? Uh, John Phillips, a great Bible teacher, shared this one time and stuck with me ever since. So in Psalm 24, verse 7 and 8, imagine, (laughs) stretch your spiritual imagination, imagine you're on guard duty that day. Imagine that you're atop the gate of heaven, and you hear a voice. And you hear a cry. And here's what the cry says. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. And then the king of glory will come in. Yeah, hello. And so then you look down. And standing there at the gate is a lone figure. 
And you see in this figure, it's only been, by the way, you understand, isn't this amazing? It's only been 33 years. 33 years in our time is a lot of time. In heaven's time, it's nothing. So he, you know, he, he was only on earth for 33 days, 34 years, 33 years. So, so it hasn't been long. But you notice and you look at this lone figure, and he bears the mark of the cross. There are, there are ravaged wounds in his hands and in his feet. There's a slit in his side. His, his forehead is full of holes where the thorns had pierced him. If you could see his back, you'd see that the skin had been stripped away and the scars remained. So you see this lone figure standing at the gate. And so you ask, well, who is this king of glory? It's akin to saying, halt, who goes there? Who are you? Who are you that I should let you into heaven? And here's what Jesus, the king of glory, would say. He says, I am the Lord, strong and mighty The Lord mighty in battle. So the king who had left 33 years before now stands outside the gate and he said, I'll tell you who I am. I am the the Lord strong and mighty and the Lord mighty in battle. I I have gone toe to toe. I have gone head to head with Satan. I have gone toe to toe and head to head with sin, death, and the grave and I am victorious. I am victorious, and I come back to declare that victory. I am the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. So the gates open, and he goes in, and he sits down next to the Father, as the book of Hebrews says. And then Paul wrote and said, for this reason, for the fact that he's the Lord, mighty and strong in battle, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name... That's above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father. So that's what happens there. That's in the past. So Jesus sits there today. And now we're going to go into the future. And we're not sure. It's been, it's been a couple thousand years since that time. And it's a date picked out somewhere. And what date is arbitrary in heaven. But, but there's a date in the heaven, heavens that only, only the Father knows. You know, Jesus said, I don't even know the day. Only your Father knows for sure. And so one day, one day, the Son, the Father is going to look at the Son. And guess what he's going to say? It's time. It's time. Time for what, you say? Time to go get the kids. It's time to go get the kids. Now, now this is this is a good scripture. Now, this this is a this is Paul's account of what happens. So, so Jesus then stands up again and he leaves heaven again. And here's how Paul describes it, and we find it in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse sixteen through eighteen. Here's what it says: For the Lord Himself, the King of Glory, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. With a shout, with the archangel's voice, archangel's voice. So apparently the angels are with him, and with the trumpet call of God. And here's his mission. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. All the saints who have died throughout the ages, their spirits going to be united. Their spirits are with God, and they're going to be reunited. Their bodies going to be resurrected, and boom, like that. Like that, okay, they're put back together. And then the Bible says this, verse 17. Then we who are still alive, who are left, 
will be caught up, that's where the word rapture comes from, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So when he leaves heaven, just like he was a man on a mission when he left heaven the first time, he's a man on the mission for the second time, and his mission is to bring the family home. To bring the family home. So, once again, now all of a sudden, we hear you're on gate duty again. We're at the gates of heaven, and you hear a noise. And you look down, and there's not a singular figure, but there's thousands and thousands and millions and millions and, yes, perhaps billions and billions of people. So, you ask and say this, Jesus says, lift up your gates, lift up your heads, your gates, rise up ancient doors, and then the king of glory will come in. I'm on guard duty. So we say, well, who is he, this king of glory? And guess what title? The Lord of heaven's army. The Lord of heaven's army. When Jesus comes back for that second homecoming, for certain we are going to be there. Amen. Those who know Christ are going to be there. And then all these angels. Listen to this. Let me go to the Christmas story again. You remember when the angel says, you know, hey, you need to go to Bethlehem. The, the, you know, the Son of God has been born. And the Bible says, and suddenly there's a multitude. Listen to this. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 13. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others. The armies of heaven. Did you know it's in there so many times? The armies of heaven. Uh, praising God. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse number 11, looking forward, listen to this. Here's what John says. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and thousands and millions. See, y'all think, y'all want to give Satan more credit than he's due. Have you figured out he's not even in the ball game? Yeah, yeah, you know what? He's a powerful creature, but compared to God, he ain't nothing. And then that piddling army of demons he's got, it ain't nothing compared to the army of God. Ain't nothing compared. Listen, listen. Then I, then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. Uh, the ESV, I believe it is, says this. There are thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. So, so at the gate, at the gate, all of a sudden, then you've got this, this huge group. And you've got all the believers and all these angels. And he says, who is this? Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, now, that's a name of authority. You need that today because we're still living in fear of the coronavirus. We're still living in fear of division of our country. Fear, fear. Matter of fact, the fear mongers, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, and the rest of them, the fear mongers sell it every time you turn on the news. And you need to know something. That's exactly what they are. They are fear mongers. But let me tell you something. If you're a child of the king, your God is so much more powerful than whatever it is that you think you've got to fear. Okay? So, so, so then, so Haggai gets this message. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. This is the one talking. This, <laughs> this is the one doing the talking. This is, listen, when God's doing the talking, that means we're supposed to be doing the listening. 
Amen? When he's doing the talking, we're supposed to be doing the listening. So, so, that's the one asking the question. And he does ask a question. And his topic is holiness. What? Hey, listen. Holiness is important to God. So the most powerful, most powerful God, all right, is doing the talking. Here's what he says. He says to Haggai, ask the priest this question. It's about the law. Verse 12. If one of you, priest, if one of you, priest, is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robe, so I, I kind of imagine, I don't think he's got that old greasy meat in his robe. I think he's got a pan, and maybe using his robe as, as hot pot holders. Okay? So you've got this sacrifice, carrying it in your robes, and, 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 your robe happens to brush against some bread or stew or wine or olive oil, something that is common. Something that's common. So if something that is holy, the sacrifice, happens to brush against something that is common or unholy, he says, all right, will the common become holy? So if, if the sacrifice accidentally touches something that's common or unholy, will the holiness of the sacrifice be transferred to the common, the unholy? And the priest said, no. And you know what? They were exactly right. They were exactly right. Holiness, this is where you need to be taking notes. Holiness is not the pandemic. We wear masks, we wear face shields, we keep six feet apart so we won't catch the pandemic. You've got it and you can give it to me. Okay? Holiness is not like that. Holiness is a birthright. Holiness is a birthright. See, and, that, and that's important to know, by the way. See, holy, God's holy people, the church, cannot make our culture holy. It can influence the culture, but it can't make it holy. See, making something holy is God's business. See, one day, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, He made you holy. But it's His business. It wasn't even your business. It wasn't like you could, you know, you could do something and earn this holiness. God imputed that holiness like, he, like Christ imputes righteousness. He imputed the holiness on you. It is a birthright that you have. And, and it occurs in our life when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior. It occurs, now, not, I'll say this again later. I know I'm going to repeat myself. Not when you're baptized. Not when you join church. Not, not when you decide to go to church. Not when you decide you want to be a particular domination. Okay, holiness occurs in your life when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, holiness means set apart, set apart. We become set apart for God when we are born again. We become set apart from, for God when we're born again. Adrian Rogers, and Adrian Rogers is pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, one of the greatest preachers America has ever produced, and says this, holiness is not the way to Christ. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Amen? Christ is the way to holiness. Um, we need to understand that's all God's business. When Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 4, he said this, Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation is found in no one else. You know, if you want to see a marine iguana, there's only one place where an iguana is an aquatic animal. Okay? And it's off the coast of Ecuador at the Galapagos Islands. 
So if you want to see a marine, if you want to see an iguana that swims in the ocean, okay, underwater like an otter, okay, you go one place, and that's those islands. You need to understand something. If you want salvation, if you want to be saved, if you want forgiveness of sins, if you want God to touch and make you part of his family, there's only one place you can go, and that is to Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved, where we are made whole. No other name. No other name. And you know what I love about this? It's broad and narrow. See, some people go... Well, that's awful narrow thing, especially in this culture today. That's such narrow thinking. It is narrow thinking. Because God blatantly declares that if you want to come to me, you come through this. If you want to come to me, there's one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to come to the Father, there's only one way. But it's also broad, and that's the great part. It's broad because God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's narrow in that Jesus Christ is the only way. But then God throws open the door and says, Now, any man, woman, child, race, creed, doesn't matter what nationality, what language you speak, any person who's willing to look to the cross and receive faith by faith, receive forgiveness of sins, turning from their sins and following Jesus, any man can come to Jesus. It's narrow, but it's broad. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Islam's not that broad. Hinduism is not that broad. But you know what? Jesus is. Jesus is. So when your friend says, well, that's such narrow thinking, no way, he said, you would say, wait just a minute. The invitation is open to anybody who wants to come. Anybody who wants to come. And then, and then understand this and nail this down and write this down. Look in your Bible app. Make a note on this. Okay? Internal holiness is never generated by external action. Internal holiness, being born again, is never generated by external action. Okay, your baptism had nothing to do with your holiness. How often you come to church and how faithful you are has nothing to do with your holiness. Uh, how big a check you write to the church has nothing to do with your holiness. It is all the cause and the work and the business of God. Of God. Of God. Now, now those things might be indicators. They're just not generators. They're indicators. You should, you should have some indicators. That's called practical holiness. You should have some indicators that you belong to Christ, but cannot and will not generate your holiness. Okay, so that's God's topic on holiness. Okay? Can, can something that's holy brush up against something that's not holy and make that thing holy? No, it can't. But then he goes this. What about this? The thought continues. In verse 13. Then Haggai asked this. Well, if someone then becomes ceremoniously unclean by touching a dead person. And that's the Jewish law. If you touch a dead person for a certain amount of time, you're declared unclean. Okay? So, so if someone becomes ceremoniously unclean by touching a dead person and then touches any of these foods, the stew, the bread, or whatever, okay, then, then will the food become defiled? And here's the answer. Yes. See, holiness can't be transferred but sin readily can. Sin defilement readily can. You know, if I had a glass of water here, and it was dirty water, okay, and I put a drop of clean water in there, it wouldn't make that glass any cleaner? Well, no. One drop of clean is not going to overpower a whole glass of dirty. But what if I've got a glass of clean water, and I put one, one drop of dirty water in there? What happens to that whole glass? It becomes defiled. 
I'll prove it to you. We can go out and find some, some poo-poo in the yard, and we'll put just a drop in there and see how fast you drink it. Can I have an amen? Yeah, see, see, that just doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. So simpleness okay, and uncleanliness, they spread readily in this culture that we live in. There's no doubt about that. Now, and Paul talked about that. Now, the Corinthian church, they were a real paradox. The Corinthian church were all in the spiritual gifts and tongues and all of this. But boy, they were carnal. They were carnal. And they had, they had a, a guy that was having an affair with either his, his stepmother or mother. really not sure which one. But it was like crazy, okay? And instead of being like brokenhearted, oh no, we've got this terrible sin in the church. They're going, but yeah, we speak in tongues. <laughs> oh, oh, but yeah, but we do this and we do that, you know. And, and Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He said, your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. Um, don't you know that a little leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole batch of dough. Put a little leaven in a clump of dough and it affects the whole dough. And Paul's saying that's how sin is. Sin, somebody else's sin can impact the fellowship. Uh, so a daddy's sin can I have anything to do with this? A daddy or mama's sin can definitely impact the whole family. It really can. It really can. Jesus was worried about teaching. He said, he said to his disciples, he said in Matthew 19, or 16, 6, then Jesus told them, watch out. Watch out and be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they were false teaching. And you know and I know Whole churches that have been led astray by a false teacher or pastor. And when we take and twist and, and pollute the word of God, and they preach that stuff, and people buy it. And they buy it. So defilement can spread like crazy. Now, we're back to Haggai. And I wrote this and said this. I call this the pandemic of disobedience. Now, now, in a way, we're looking back. So it's not like, like Haggai's looking back now. God's looking back and says this in verse 14. Then Haggai responded to all of this. Remember, holiness cannot be transferred. Sin can. Holiness cannot be transferred. Sin can. Okay. Then Haggai responded. This is how it is with this people and this nation, says the Lord. This is how it is. And he's looking back to the time before they became obedient in their disobedient state for 16 years. Yes, they were back in the Holy Land. Yes, they were probably actually offering sacrifices on an altar they had made. Yes. But God said, that is how it is with this people in this nation. Saying, Lord, everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. You may be back home. You may be in Jerusalem. You may be offering sacrifice. But listen, listen, listen. Your sin is defiling everything you do. Church, we got to hear this. We got to hear this. The church has got way too laxadaisical about sin. We have become way too tolerant of sin. Hey, we are way too tolerant of sin in our lives. We gossip. We're bitter. We're angry. And then get bad about somebody drinking a beer. Let me tell you something. Whether you drink a beer, you know, determine what that is, and you deal with that. But I'm telling you, gossip and anger and bitterness and all the stuff we have going on in church way before the pandemic, you know, it breaks the heart of God. Amen? It breaks the heart of God. He says, but listen, everything you do is defiled by this. And I think, I think that was the condition of the church. 
before the pandemic. You notice I said the church, not this church necessarily. The church. The church. I, I think there's this tolerance of sin. This lackadaisical, this all things are important but God mentality. So what's going to happen? Well, in verse 15, Haggai says this. Let's, let's, he goes, let's look in the rearview mirror. He says, look at what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation. Okay, so we're going to look back at the days when for 16 years, when you were totally disobedient. You said, it's not time to build the temple. It's not time to do the things. We've got personal things to do. We've got our own houses to build. We've got our own affairs to manage. He said, look back to those times. In verse 10, what happened when you hoped for a 20 bushel crop? You only got 10. And, and when you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you only found 20. They were lean, hard times because of their sin. And then God sent Haggai, and if you will, put the hammer down. And then he goes from there to verse 17, I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. And excuse me, does that not like sound like the pandemic? I mean, can we go over it again? God took the sports world and shut it down. God took the economy for a while and shut it down. God took the ple- world of pleasure. I was talking to someone, and I saw an article in the news about New Orleans, how it's about to go under. The hotels are empty. The cruise industry is gone. Bourbon Street virtually is empty. God shut it down. Doesn't that sound like God was doing something dramatic in our world and taking the things that we worked so hard to produce and made them nothing? Am I the only one? It makes sense, doesn't it? It does. It does. And then he says this. Even so, in spite of all that, even so you refused to return to me, says the Lord. After that much and all of that, you refused to turn to me. See, it's so important. It's so important we learn whatever we're supposed to learn through this. It's really important. I understand the, the we, we talked about this week, you know, the re- desire for going back the way things were, to go back. But understand, if God, if God allowed this or sent this for a purpose, and all we want to do is go back the way things were, we're saying, God, you know what you're talking about. Things were fine the way they were. We were happy. Thank you very much. The nation of Israel certainly did that. These, the remnant did that. We want to make sure we don't do that. We make sure whatever it is God's trying to teach us, that we learn it. You know, when you give your kids a spanking or you ground them or time out, I don't know how y'all do it now. You know, we generally speaking, I grounded Rebecca more times than I can remember. And then she'd come and smile at me and I'd melt and un- unground you. Did I not do that? I was the ungrounding king, you know. But you don't learn lessons through ungrounding. You learn lessons through the discipline and learn what God wants us to do. So, so he says, you, you refuse to come. So we don't want to just move on and say, God, thanks for the invitation, but we'll just continue doing business like we did before. That would be a definite tragedy. So in verse 18, I love this. God says this. Because remember, he's looking back. He's looking back at that time, those 16 years, and then the short period when when things were just going south in a big way. 
when God said, I sent drought, all of this. He's looking back on that. Now look what he says in verse 18. Think about this. Think about this 18th day of December, the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Think carefully. He says, that was then, and those were days of disobedience. But, 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 now, now, for the last four months, about, you have been obedient. Remember this day. And church, I want to make sure that we get to the point where we understand God individually, what do you want me to learn? God is a family. What are you teaching us? Hey, Daddy, what is God teaching? Hey, Mama, what is God teaching? Hey, kids, what is God teaching? What does God want you to learn from this time called COVID? What is it? And he says, then remember that. Remember that. Don't, don't let the lesson be learned for a while and then forgotten. Remember this 18th day of December. Think about the time of disobedience, but now remember the time of obedience. Remember the difference. I wrote in the little slide there, the difference is dramatic. The difference, and the promise is fantastic. Now, now look at verse number 19, the first part. If you don't remember anything, take this home today. Take this home. Now imagine, God's talking to the Israelites. They've got this long history of disobedience, me first, self, forget the kingdom stuff. They had a short time where God just turned off the economy, drought, all of that mess. They decided to follow God, and they're living in obedience now. Okay, remember all of that. And then he says this, I am giving you a promise. I am giving you a promise. I'm giving it to you now while the seed is still in the barn. He's saying, I know it's been four months. <laughs> Have y'all noticed how we pray? God, I've uh, I spent 20 years wrecking my marriage. Uh, could you fix about tomorrow at noon? <laughs> yeah, don't we do that? Okay? So then, you know, they spend all this time messing up. And so now they've been obeying for four months. And God knows they may be getting discouraged. Because he knows the people of Israel. <laughs> he knows us. He knows us. They might just be getting... Hey, by the way, write the scripture down. Proverbs 13, 12 is an awesome scripture. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. See, some, <laughs> some of us are a little heart sick through the pandemic because we got this hope and the hope ain't happened as fast as we thought it would and we're just a little sick over it. Can I have an Amen. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And, and God sends these, this message to these folks. They've been building now for four, four months, and their barns are still empty. There's no evidence the crops are going to be different. There's no evidence the olive trees are going to bear. There's no evidence that they planted 20. We're going to get 20. They just soon thought they might get 10. And God says, I want you to know something. I'm giving you a promise. I'm giving you a promise. Even though there's no evidence, I want you to believe it. God is saying that this day. God is saying to his people, I'm giving you a promise. I know there's no evidence. We just don't know, you know how school is going to work out, how the jobs are going to work out, what industry, you know, this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that. We don't know. And God says, I just want to give you an encouraging word. I know, I know the seed is still in the barn, but I want to give you a promise. 
Well, what's the promise, God? Okay. You know, it's this. You have not yet harvested, verse 19, you have not yet harvested your grain. And your grapevines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive trees have not yet produced their crops. Here it is, here it is, here it is. But from this day forward, I'll be with you. See, we, we really want God to you know, restore our wealth like Job seven times what we had. That may or may not happen, but God does say this. Joe, I'm with you. I'm Chris, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I know, I know there's no evidence right now. Thank you. Know, I'm, honoring, I'm, I'm honoring your obedience. I'm honoring your obedience. You're, you're working on the temple. I'm honoring your obedience. I know you don't see it, but trust me. My word is golden. When I say it, I do it. And I don't know what the end result is going to be in this pandemic deal. I just know God does. And that has got, God, that has got to be enough for us. It's got to be enough for us. You know, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I'm going to back up Nancy. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Be obedient even when you do not know where obedience may lead you. Can't read it. Yeah, I know you got it. Be obedient even when you do not know where obedience may lead you. Believe even when you don't know where that belief is going to take you. Have faith even when you don't know where that faith is going to take you. Just trust God. Charles Stanley, he's pastor of First Baptist Church of Atlanta, and said this. If you tell God no. If you tell God, no, you are actually hindering his blessing. Now, God's not a horse trader, but the bottom line is he seems to bless an obedient life. But when we tell God, no, we're actually hindering his blessing. But when you say yes, all of heaven's op- heaven opens to pour out his goodness and reward your obedience. But that's not what's important. Here's what's important. What matters more, what matters more than material blessings are the things he is teaching us in our spirit. Oh, wow. Okay, here you go. Write this down. More important than the outcome of COVID are going to be the things we learn in COVID. Write that down. More important than the outcome of COVID is what we learn in the midst of COVID. So here we are, and we learned last week that PPE, that even though Haggai was written to the nation of Israel 520 years before the birth of Christ, we know all that. We don't want to mishandle scripture, okay? We understand that there are principles and parallels and experiences that we can bring into the 20th century. We can do that 21st century. We can do that, and we do that, okay? Now, we're going to go back a little bit further when Solomon was about to dedicate, was dedicating the, the new magnificent temple. And, and God responded to his prayer with a scripture that totally applies to us today. It's not, it's not out of context. We can take this scripture, and you know it. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, if my people, 
I think David said, that's us, the Gentiles. <laughs> Save Gentiles. But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, hashtag depend on me, and pray, hashtag that means pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I, God speaking, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. I will show grace and I will show mercy. I will show grace and I will show mercy. That applies to us. Now that's not, don't try to apply that to the, to the lost culture. That was a promise to the Jews, but I think we can bring it forward to the church. You know, America as a whole is not God's people. We are God's people. The chosen ones, the redeemed ones. You know, there's a scripture over in, in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a personal verse. It's a personal verse. In other words, if I choose to confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all righteousness. Okay? But what happens when then if Brent, if I pray that and mean it and it happens, then Brent, you do it, and then, and then Gary, you do it, okay? And then Trevor, you do it, okay? And then, uh, oh, Ben, Ben back there, you do it. And all of a sudden, what happens when the people of God start believing and practicing and doing 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What happens when individuals group together as the body of Christ praying this verse? I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's called revival. It's called revival. So we are so concerned about America. Show it. Confess your sins. Confess your sins and turn to God. And collectively, God will use his church to influence the lost culture called the American culture. That's how it's going to happen. That's how it will change. You know, tucked away in Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And if we want righteousness to exalt this nation, it's got to begin in the house of God. And I really do believe that's part, part, part of what this co-ed mess is about. I think God is speaking to his church, calling us to depend on him, lean on, calling him, calling us to prioritize our lives again, away from calendars stuffed to the gills with stuff, um, checkbooks depleted by so much stuff. He's calling us home to him, to him. So we always end our service with the time of the decision. And it's twofold this morning. You know, if you're here today, and I don't know how you took this message, you might go, yeah, that's why I don't come to church. Talk to uh, preachers like you. I don't know. But I know this. If you're here today and something's pulling you, you can't explain it, you don't understand it, it may be frightening to you. But something's saying to you, this is what you need. You need this relationship with a man who died on the cross. You may be called, pulling, God's pulling you by faith to believe that Jesus did die for your sins. He did come to earth and live a sinless life. He did die. He did resurrect on the third day. And you're part of that whosoever. That if you're willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus and willing to turn from your sin and follow him, 
then you can have eternal life. My friend, friends can be standing down front, and we would love to share with you how that happened in your life. And I know a chunk of us, maybe most of us here today, know Jesus Christ as Savior. Got that. Understand that. Now, the question is this. What are we going to do with this? What are, what are we going to do with what we've heard for three weeks? Or maybe what God's spoken to you in your quiet time or on your way to work. And he spoke to you and said, I'm calling you to something new. I'm calling you to something different. I'm calling you to leave behind a life that was just stuffed full of stuff. I'm calling you to me. What are you going to do with that? Again, the greatest tragedy will not be the COVID virus. The greatest tragedy will be that we do not accomplish what God wants to accomplish. We don't do what God called us to do. And we don't learn what God called us to learn. That's the greatest tragedy. The altar will be open if you'd like to come and pray. I'll have people pray with you if you'd like that. Um, but this is our time for you, for us, to do something with, with what God has said to us over these last three weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much for the privilege of sharing today. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're sovereign, God. I believe you're in control. I don't understand all that's been going on. I get frustrated. I, I'm, I, I, I do. But God, help us, teach us to lean and trust on you. You are magnificent in your glory. You are the Lord of heaven's armies. You're the commander-in-chief of creation and all of heaven. If there's a friend here today who's never trusted Christ, Lord, I pray you'll speak to their hearts. Let them realize their need of a Savior, a Redeemer, a rescuer. And Father, for the rest of us who maybe already know Jesus, stir our hearts, God. Lord, keep us from going back or staying the same. Lord, urge us. Urge us. Ignite us to move forward and follow you. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen.